This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are starting a new series that reflects on the heartbreaking realities of spiritual abuse, using notes from a recent conference to guide the conversation. Yeah, um, this was a this has been a series that I've been thinking about for a while, Brent. I've gone back and forth on uh, doing it. I am. I have been struggling for a long time with the old imposter syndrome with this series. Like, who am I to do this? I shouldn't be talking about this. Um, just all kinds of those things. I've, I've gone back and forth. I just get so many emails about this topic. I've, I hear so many stories. I see, I, I, I see so many people. Um, I've recently just gone through so much conversation and and so I want to have this conversation because it's a conversation that um, we just need to be having. We need to be we, we need to have the conversation. We need to not be afraid to have the conversation. And so one of the ways that you deal with imposter syndrome, uh, by the way, I think I did a YouTube video on this. Brent, find this YouTube uh, my little YouTube reflection on imposter syndrome. Uh, drop it in the in the show notes. But um, part of the ways that you deal with imposter syndrome is just being honest about who you are and who you're not. Um, don't hold your don't make yourself in to be somebody that you're not. I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to try to play any of those roles in this series. Um I am uh I am simply a spiritual leader that has learned a lot in my journey. I've learned a lot of things that I wish uh I would have never done or feel like I was trained to do or just a lot of reflection and things that I wish I want to get better at as a leader. So it's coming from that stage. We'll talk more about that before we're done today. Um, but this isn't, we're not going to get like super deep. We're not going to get like super fiery and prophetic uh, in this episode. So everybody can take a deep breath. All right. We're going to, we're going to just kind of, we're just going to have a really basic, really shallow conversation just because I don't know if we're having enough of these conversations and we need to continue to open those doors and open those windows to have those conversations and to hear that dialogue. Um, we're just going to practice some curiosity. We're going to practice some empathy. I know the last time I tried to do that on session six of the podcast, uh, man, did everybody get upset? But here we go again. Um, we're, we're just going to, we're not going to try to be super. We're not trying to be underhanded, strong-handed, provocative. Nope, nope, nope. We're just wanting to have just a super basic conversation. I know as I started to investigate um, doing this series, I just had so many resources sent to me um, by all kinds of amazing people. And some of those resources were amazing. Some of those resources, I, I wasn't quite sure. Some of those resources are, are just outside of their, I need to stay in my lane. And and so some of you sent me a bunch of resources, and I appreciate that. I thank you. And that was all a part of creating uh, this episode and then the three that come after this. We're going to do four episodes on this. And uh, and I just appreciate the way that everybody contributed to that. And just because I don't reference some of your sources in the show notes or anything, um, there could be a whole list of reasons why I didn't do that. So I just appreciate everybody's help. But um, what I wanted to do today is I just wanted to kind of like ease us into this conversation. Um, and 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 just speak from some personal experience. Yeah, and I think I have maybe some questions about this because I feel like going into this, I'm like, well, do I know anything about spiritual abuse? I don't think so. But I think if I step back and and look at it a little more closely, there's probably a lot of stuff that I've seen or even have experienced that would be considered spiritual abuse. And I just, 
am naive to it. So I'm excited to kind of step through this and, and see what comes out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have some comments right at the beginning here as we get started. And then really when we start to, we won't really even define spiritual abuse until next episode. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next. So these are going to be some general reflection comments uh, to start our episode today. Maybe maybe a shorter conversation. Who knows? We'll see. Um, okay. All right. Make me wait. I like it. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I was at a conference recently. We gather we gather together as campus ministers for. Um, we, we have an association of college ministries that we are a part of. We put on a couple conferences, a, a retreat every spring, and then somewhere late summer we always have a a, a conference together. Uh, we call it the E four. And um, and was at the E4, the conference this year, and we were having a workshop on Gen Z, which is college students. And just for the sake of defining terms here, uh, we'll talk some – we'll make references throughout this conversation and the ones to come to Gen Z. Gen Z, a lot of people just kind of mush millennials and Gen Z together. Those are two distinct, uh, distinct generations. Uh, millennials is a small sliver of a demographic um, that was the last children of boomer parents. That's what defines a millennial as who the parent generation was. Gen Z is what is going to be the largest generation uh, of, uh, at least as as far as sociologists have defined those generations. Uh, They're already the largest generation to date. Um, They are the first uh, generation who is the children of Gen X parents. So I don't know... uh, uh, Brent, I sit right on the border. Me personally, Marty Solomon, I'm 39 years old. I sit right on the border of uh, millennials and Gen X. So that's kind of right where I fall. My children are definitely Gen Z, according to, um, but but they also go all the way up to uh, mid-20s, mid to even later 20s is going to be the, the range of Gen Z until we know what the next defining moment of the next generation is going to be. I don't want to get into sociology. It's really not my gig. Uh, I don't really care. People get really hung up on that stuff. But when we talk about Gen Z, we're talking about college student age, maybe just recently graduated a year or two ago. That's the age demographic we're talking about is Gen Z. Um, And we are having this workshop on Gen Z and these reflections. And there are some really cool things that were happening. Um, One of my colleagues, uh, colleagues, whatever, um, not an impact, but another brother, who does campus ministry. His name is Dave Embry. He's in Missouri. And he was leading this reflection on who Gen Z is. He's a professor at, in Missouri, um, as well as somebody who who has a passion to work with, with college students. And he had on the stage with him uh, Rob and Leah Schrumpf, who is the couple who planted uh, the Purdue campus house, or at least they were there. I believe they're the ones that planted the ministry. They might have been there when it planted, but Rob and Leah Shrump, and it's this, it's this really, uh, they do an amazing job there. They're, they're kind of a sister ministry. They're from the same faith tradition that Impact is a part of. They're not a part of Impact, but we, we kind of work side by side, I, I guess you could say, and they're there at, at, at Purdue. Um, they have this massive ministry and just a ton of insight and perspective from the things that they've done and been through. And they were just sharing back and forth. And every now and then, um, Rob's wife, Leah, would would add commentary. And she was, man, just dropping fire that day. Like, I was just wow. It was so good. Some of the things she was saying, things that were like, 
I wish people would say this out loud. Why have I never heard anybody say this out loud? And so I had some of these notes. We were actually trying to get her on this series to talk on the podcast. And she's just a super busy and overwhelmed. Even she's dealing with some of the things that we're even going to be talking about today. Leah's getting trained and getting certified uh, in the area of counseling and spiritual abuse uh, focus. And so she's, she's going through all of those classes and all of that training and all those things. And, um, going through some personal stuff right now. She just wasn't able to come on. She did give me permission to uh, to speak to her, to use her quotes that I have in my notes, and just to talk about that. And so that's where I'm pulling some of these thoughts from today, because she just had some, oh man, some incredible things that she she shared, and I loved it. So they're going to kind of guide our time today. Is it Anything else we need to add, Brent, before we get, get rolling? Well, I'll just say, before anyone asks, we do not have a recording of this Um conference breakout session. So don't bother asking. We don't have it. That is correct. Thank you. We can already anticipate the emails that will come in. Um, and and we might be able to throw a link to the campus house there at Purdue in the show notes. Um, I'm not going to link too much to to Leah just to respect. This is such a hard topic to talk about. And she gave me permission. I don't want to overuse that uh, permission. So we're not going to do a whole lot of linking. Um, she does hope that maybe she'll be able to join us in some future podcasts. So I hope that is the case. But for now, I dive into my notes from this workshop. Uh, Leah spoke towards the beginning of her time. One of the first comments that she added is she started talking about this mental illness epidemic. Um, she was addressing some comments that had been made about how there's this mental illness epidemic amongst Gen Zers, which I I could only affirm. Like, um. Uh, all the college students that I've worked with for a decade, especially when I was on the field in campus ministry before I was the president of impact. And I was more like day to day working with college students, all of them, almost every single one of the students that I worked closely with uh, ended up in, in some kind of therapy. And that is not a derogatory statement, Brent. I'm in therapy right now. I could not tell you, uh, I could not say enough about how important, um, like, let's just say that in the midst of this conversation, my time in counseling, my time with my therapist, which I do on a regular basis, once every two years or so, I'll go spend at least six months with a therapist just so I'm talking out loud. So I have somebody who's professionally trained, listening to the language that I'm using, the way that my mind and my heart, my think, my, my thinking self and my feeling self, how all these things are interacting with each other. It's just so helpful. And this is something that this generation is more and more and more aware of. Is that what's leading to the epidemic? Is there increased awareness? Uh, maybe. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not the I'm not the expert in that. But we're becoming more and more aware. I think we're losing the stigma that is attached to um, uh, just having a good counselor and a good therapist, and so it's leading to a more open dialogue. And who knows what's caused that mental illness epidemic? But um, and and one of the notes that I have in my notebook, Brent, is we we hear this all the time: trauma informed spiritual leaders. We need more spiritual leaders who are trauma informed, who are trained, who have received training in being trauma informed. And this again, this is something I think we're becoming culturally more aware of, partially because of millennials and Gen Z, but just because sociologically, we're evolving, we're developing as a people. The internet has made sharing stories and sharing information and learning so much more accessible. This is the natural result. But I can tell you, Brent, I had no classes on, and this isn't a knock on Bible college. 
2001 was a different time. All right. But I had no training. I had no training. Uh, sport, spent four years being trained for pastoral ministry to be future clergy. No training on trauma. I, I am not, I have no formal education to be trauma informed, which seems weird to me, doesn't it? Do you think that seems weird to you? Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of pastoring someone, you'd think that treating that kind of, um, whatever you want to call it, that kind of situation right. would be number one job for a pastor. Right. Something that'd be super important to be like the delicate nature, the do's and don'ts, <laughs> everything, everything from the legal to just the basic essentials of what, what a person needs and what not to do. And, and again, I would never have said in 2001, 2002, 2003, I would have never said like, that's super important. But now, especially with all the pastoral experience I've had, being a spiritual leader, looking back and the things that we know as a culture today, golly, I hope we're working some kind of trauma-informed training into our, and I don't know if we are. I don't know if we are. Um, but we need to start saying out loud that we as leaders are not trained and equipped. We are not informed on what trauma is and how to deal with it. And that is a gap that we need to, we, we've been talking as an executive team here at impact. We need to start finding some trauma, uh, some becoming more trauma informed. We need to, we need to find some training as executive leaders so that we are not in this hole in this gap of misinformation. So that's just one of the notes that I had in my notebook. This might be somewhat of a disjointed conversation. Anything you would add to that, Brent? Um, no, I think that just speaks to my earlier um, feeling that as, as we continue this conversation, I will, I will realize things, I will learn things, and and a, a light will click on, and I will see, oh, I have actually witnessed that kind of trauma in the past. I have actually seen that kind of abuse in the past and just was naive to it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you said that earlier, I thought, yeah, I, I even looked at that part of my notes, like trauma-informed training. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another note that I have from Leah's comments. Um, again, the statement may not fly off the page or off the off, off your ears as you hear it, but I just thought this was such a deep statement. Our posture towards this generation matters. Uh, and and I know I'm passionate about this because I'm a campus minister. Like I'm I'm the president of a campus ministry organization. I get that. But our posture towards Generation Z, this young adult, college age students, our posture towards this generation matters. And just think about the way that we talk about what's the general and I know that there are exceptions. We're not going to overgeneralize here, Brent, but just what has your what what do you feel like the tone of the conversation is and this isn't unique to this day and you know this period of history we've always kind of done this with every generation but what's the posture and the tone when you talk about college students generally in the world uh, most of the i mean i i'm in a campus ministry organization so i feel like there's quite a bit of optimism in my immediate vicinity but i think most people look at like oh college kids they're dumb. They don't know what they're doing yet. They're young. They're inexperienced, whatever. Right. They're naive. They're, oh, so silly college students. Eye roll, snowflakes. I can't believe they're in so much therapy. So, so you know, the mental illness up and down. Like, we have this posture of like, man, I'm so much better off. Like, I know better. Our posture towards this generation 
matter. So I'm going to grab a, a note that I have uh, later here in my notes. She says this, this comes from Leah. We are born to see our face reflected in the face of another. We are born to see our face reflected in the face of another. Part of what it means to be human is to see our shared humanity. That's part of where belonging comes from. To look at a teacher, to look at a mentor, to look at a parent, to look at a pastor, to look at leaders, and to and when they look back at us to see a piece of ourself, that, and that piece that comes from empathy, that when they look at us, they look at us with empathy and a shared solidarity, and part of that to see what we could become. Like, that's discipleship. We are born to see our face reflected in the face of another. Our posture towards this generation matters. I do not think the general posture we have towards young people today is one in which shows a bunch of empathy and in which they see their face reflected back to them. I, th- I think they see a bunch of disdain, a bunch of, uh, like, like I said, like, like a, an eye-rolling posture, uh, a disregard. That's an overgeneral. Don't get upset. That's just I'm passionate about that. I get that. Okay. Here's my next note. This generation has come to be what it is because of the context that we created for them. This generation has come to be whatever it is because of the context that we created for them. So whatever it is that you, whatever it is that bothers you about this generation, whatever it, whatever it could be. Like, I don't know what it is. I want to make your list up for you, but you have your list of like, oh, these young people today, they just are X, Y, and Z. Well, they're X, Y, and Z because of the world that we created. There was something about the world that we, there was something that, oh, this mental illness epidemic. I can't believe, well, I don't know what caused it, but they are byproducts of a world that we created. So is there any self-reflection that we're engaging in to say, so what led to this? If there's something we don't like, and I'm not sure half the stuff we don't like, we really should be not liking. Like, I, I think there's a lot of beautiful things that we should be seeing in the stuff that we don't like. Nevertheless, are we, are we reflecting? Are we self-reflecting at all um, when it comes to like, well, this generation? Well, whatever that generation is, beautiful or positive or negative, beautiful or frustrating, both things. They are a product of the context and the world that we created for them. Uh, I don't know, Brent. You got you got an, you got an example. What is what's something you've heard about college students, just young people in general? What's something we, we we've heard? Uh, well, so I think there's this um, there's this thing that people like to say, like, oh, the the previous generation was you know really authoritarian as parents, and so our generation's parents were so much more relaxed in how they parented us. And so that's why this generation has no discipline. Okay. No discipline. Right. right. Okay, good. So it's a great example. So, so, so what is it about the world that we created caused the reaction in our children to create the world that we now look at with disdain? Or, or when you were sharing that, Brent, I thought about participation trophies, right? I'm, I'm this former athlete. I even share this like awkward tension of like, oh man, everybody gets an award now. You can't keep score at the kids' games. You got to protect everybody's feelings. And yet, okay, so where did that come from? Because that reaction came from some kind of 
misuse, some kind of abuse of another culture that wasn't held accountable. And so there was a correction, maybe an overcorrection, maybe not an overcorrection, but there was a correction to something. Is there any self-reflection to be had there? Did I say that well? Is that Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah. Participation trophies, big, big uh, sticking point for a lot of people. Yeah. And yet that comes from somewhere. That doesn't, that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. That happened as a reaction to something else. So, so are, we re- are we reflecting on that? We did something that led to a world that said, there's something wrong with the world you're creating, so we're going to do this instead. Um, let's see here. What's, what's my next note? Um, okay. They need family. Speaking of Generation Z, they need family. Here's here's a comment to reflect on. I don't know if I have a whole bunch of commentary here. Just reflect on this. We need we need to move in ministry from information to transformation, and we will not be talking about manipulative behavior transformation. That's not what we're talking about here. But we have based so much ministry and discipleship and outreach in the transfer of information, data transfer. We are giving people information. People don't need more information. There might have been a day and an age where that is what we needed, but we don't need that anymore. People need family and belonging, which means information is not nearly as important as transformation, and transformation done appropriately is going to be engaged in relationally. So we need less information, more transformation. In order to do that, I'm going to need – let's go back to these quotes. I'm going to need to see my face – reflected in the face of another. If I'm going to be changed, I'm going to need to see my face reflected. In I'm going to need empathy, 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 empathy. I can't even believe there's like this recent like outcry amongst the whole section of Christianity. That's like empathy is like, have you seen this Brent? Have you seen this on the, in the, in the interwebs, the Twitter verse? Uh, I don't think so, but I don't know. I'm not always paying that close of attention. I, I try not to use names, but there's a, there's a whole section of Christian thought right now that's having these reactions. There's a whole organization that's firing people who practice empathy because empathy is like not a Christian virtue. You can only you can only engage in sympathy but never empathy. It just drives me crazy. Yeah, and speaking speaking of, you know, the the classic Romans 12 line, you know, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be informed by the renewing of your mind, right? Right. And that renewing of the, and that renewing of the mind is going to come in the midst of, like you said, Romans twelve, which is a whole section about, like no, that whole. No, what's no. I said, I said, informed instead of transformed. Oh, you got me. Oh, we should go back and take that out. Either that, or, I'm, or I can just sound like an idiot for once. We always do this to Brent. Brent got me. I love that. You 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 changed well, the verse on me like Satan did to Jesus in the desert. It's the lullaby effect, right? We've heard that oh, so many times. Man. Like we don't even think about it when we're hearing the words, don't, right? Yeah, like, don't edit what? that out, Brent. Leave that in there. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. Okay, say it again. Do not do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be informed by the renewing of your mind. I didn't even catch it. Didn't even catch it. <laughs> no, of course, of course, it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my brain automatically went to the mind portion, right? Because that's what we always focus on is the mind. And yet that section comes in the midst of Romans 12, which is a whole section of Romans about what, what's the whole context? 12, 13, 14? What's the, can you remember the theme of Romans 12, 13, 14? Uh, the, the living sacrifice, the body of Christ. Yep. Loving one another is all about loving one. It was that side of the chiasm. It's all about love. And so in the section of love, it talks about transformation because love is what actually will renew your mind. 
And that renewing of your mind is the thing that transforms you, but it comes through the medium of and the experience of loving relationships and community, this whole idea of curiosity and empathy. We are born to see our face reflected in the face of another, and our posture towards this generation matters. They need family. They need to move from information to transformation. So I love actually what you just did there, Brent, because you connected this idea of transformation to family. Like Romans 12 is talking about spiritual family. All of Romans is talking about spiritual family. We literally called the first episode of Romans blended family. Like Romans is about family. It culminates in 12, 13, 14, talking about loving each other. And in the midst of that, Paul says, that's how we experience transformation. How do we experience transformation? In relationship, in family, in seeing our face reflected in the, our posture towards this generation matters. And Romans 14, talking about the weak and the strong, like how do you, how do you care for the weak if not in the context of a family? <sighs> so good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got one more note from Leah, and then I wanted to close with just some personal reflection. Let's see here. Uh, so so this last note that I had, there's a context I need to give. In the midst of the larger conversation of the workshop, they were talking about how Generation Z sees the church, and there was a bunch, I believe it was Barna Research, if I remember correctly, it was Barna Research that had done a word association. It might have been Gallup. I'm pretty sure it was Barna. And what word does Gen Z associate most closely? And I don't know if it was a list of like, I don't know, 20 words. I don't know how they did the study. I don't know the, but the the reflection was, was that Gen Z associates the term evangelical most closely with sex offender. And everybody in the room just like lost their mind. Like people were just, ah, oh, I can't believe that. How stupid is Gen Z? Blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, it's just like, oh, we were like, so like. Part of it was we were taken aback and we should have been because there's something to reflect on in that. <laughs> there's something, Brent, for us to think about in that. Most of us were just kind of defensively like, oh, I can't even believe that. That's ridiculous. That's not like, wow, I can't even believe that. And 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 then everybody kind of like, okay, okay. And everybody kind of calmed down. And then Leah shared a, like a minute or two later. And one of the things that she said, I was just, I about stood up and clapped. She said, if we see people as commodities and if we treat them as variables to be manipulated, we are executing violence on them because we're not treating them as human beings. We're treating them as something, uh, something else. We're removing their humanity. And so, if we if we treat people as commodities and as variables to be manipulated we are doing violence on them and our behavior is the exact same as that of an abuser that is exactly what an abuser does to their victim they strip them of their humanity they treat them as a commodity and as a variable to some greater personal goal. And for us, it's an ecclesiological goal. It's a theological goal. It's a corporate goal. It's a missional goal. But if we strip people of their humanity and treat them as a commodity, as a variable to be manipulated, we are committing violence on them. And I remember going, oh my gosh, nothing like that statement is so true. And right. 
and it, it just landed in my gut. I don't know if it landed in anybody else's gut, but I was just like, oh, goodness. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts or reactions to that statement, Brent, as you hear it? Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to find this study because <laughs> I'm assuming people want to find that. But um, if I can dig it up, I'll put it in the show notes. But just wanted to break in here for a moment and say that upon further research, uh, we cannot verify the study that we're talking about outside of the professor's own um, anecdotal experience within his class and his students. Um, but we do believe that it represents the posture toward evangelicalism and how it has shifted. And let me just say um, specifically what he has in his notes or his slides or whatever. Um, as far as students in his classes, he says, to many members of Gen Z, the term evangelical Christian has the same emotive impact as the term child molester. So we just wanted to give that full disclosure and say um, what the actual source was on that. So without further ado, back to the episode. Yeah, looking at people as a commodity, like that is, you don't have to step back very far to see that that is clearly the wrong approach to viewing your fellow humans. Yeah, and I don't have to like... I'm not. I'm not blaming my institute, my my educational institutions, or my training. I'm not even blaming the churches I've been a part of necessarily. Um, I, I mean, I get it when when you're when you're told that saving souls is like the most important thing in the world. When you're told the Great Commission is like the most important thing, and you're not told. Like loving God and loving others is important, but it's it's really not that. Like it's like the, but the Great Commission, but evangelism, but you know, when you're told in your training as a pastor that the most important, and, and of course we're all giving lip service to love. Nobody's denying the importance of love, but when we get those things like misprioritized, we put them in the wrong priority order. It's no. It's no wonder. Of course, we would strip people of their humanity for the sake of the quote unquote greater good. We have a greater mission. It's more important that they, I don't know, make it to heaven. It's more important that they get saved than for them to have their humanity recognized. And and yet you can just see how wacky and how bananas, how backwards, how dangerously destructive that training, that thinking, and it's, it wasn't the training. The training was not intentionally misguided at all. But what happens is you take that training and then you leave that institution and you graduate and you get a job. And if you don't properly like deconstruct or reconstruct, or if you don't properly think critically through some of the application of how you're going to go pursue those goals, this gets dangerous real quickly yeah and i think that's something that we'll talk more about in the next episode but as far as like the intention behind it and even in the individual moments where i think most people are not going to like say oh yep we've, we've just it's just another number like you're just nobody's going to look somebody in the face and say you're just a number number another number i don't actually care about you so just say the right words and then i can get on with my my work i don't think that's I mean, maybe that's happening somewhere, but I don't think that's generally what's happening. But then when you actually step back at the end of the year and say, okay, what did I accomplish? What do I actually care about? Then you're looking at the numbers and then you 
then you make people into a commodity at that point. Yeah, and I think it's actually happening in that same moment. I, I mean, I, I, I affirm what you're saying. I don't think it's done intentionally, maliciously in those moments, but it's done subconsciously in those moments because when you're, when you're yeah, bent yeah. on those metrics, it's affecting the way that you interact with people, how you see just theology and humanity and so many things. And so it, it's, it's really good that we... Uh, spend some time. And that's what I want to do for this first part. I want to close with one other little piece here before we're done today. But I wanted to give those quotes as just reflection points to get this series started. Like, we need to spend time reflecting on this thing that we do in ministry, whether you're a pastor or a leader, volunteer, paid, whether you're just a churchgoer. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know where you find yourself in your faith journey. But if you have any place of spiritual leadership or spiritual um, incle- ecclesiological involvement, um, on any level, uh, these are really, we need to start reflecting on what is it that, forget what we care about. What does God care about? What does God care about? What did we see Jesus as we affirm God wrapped in flesh walking among us? What did Jesus care about? He cared about people uh, in all kinds of stages of inside and outside and belonging and not belonging and sinner and Pharisee. And he cared about people. He cared about humanity. And to reassess our posture towards this generation or any other group of people, our our approach that people might see their face reflected in ours. I don't care who they are, young, old, insider, outside, believer, unbeliever, as human beings, we're wired to see our face reflected in the face of another. So, so reminding ourselves of that, the need for family and belonging, that's a part of what this salvation journey is supposed to lead people to, is a place of like a new humanity, beautifully experiencing the kingdom of God, not just a tally mark on a spiritual board, somebody that's got a ticket um, to some other side, some other place. So we we need to reassess all of that. We need to think. We need to start this conversation by simply opening ourselves up and going, man. There's some there's some things there that are really dangerous, and we need to make sure we're checking checking ourselves. Having said that, I want to close with this because a lot of this series, Brent, comes from my own personal journey, and luckily, through through God's providence and great mentorship and beautiful discipleship, like I was led to my experiences in counseling and therapy, and they saved my marriage, they saved my life, they saved my ministry, um, because I was headed even further down a road that we're describing here than the one I was on, and I was already on a, a rough one, and I was headed even further, and good counseling, good therapy, good emotional my own self-development, like um, emotion, getting more and more emotionally healthy myself, led to me being more emotionally aware of other people's journeys. And what I realized is just uh, when, especially as I was younger uh, and less informed, um, man, I I had made some pretty big mistakes. And so through through these processes, I've had to learn a lot about confession and repentance. Now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into those like details here in this podcast. It's kind of outside the scope, but I did want to share as we start to consider a, a series here on spiritual abuse. I wanted to close with the Jewish understanding of what repentance looks like. Because if we start opening ourselves up to, especially those of us that are leaders, especially paid vocational ministers, if we start opening ourselves up to this conversation, 
we may become aware of some things we've participated in that need to be changed and addressed (laughs) in some big ways, seriously. And if that's the case, we need to understand confession and repentance better than I think we typically do in the Christian world. And so there's a Jewish understanding, and I've heard this probably most clearly from Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. I I don't know if we can go dig that out. I could find it, Brent. I always I always struggle uh, uh, tagging her, and I, I know she's just so provocative. She's a very, very liberal, progressive Jewish rabbi. Uh, she very much uh, – she's not a believer. She very much has – very antagonistic towards Christians and appropriation. I have learned so much from her, but it has also um, been very hard. It's been hard to learn from her. So I don't know what you want to do with that, Brent. Uh, we can find it. We can link it in the show notes or or not. I just don't want to like confuse people. Or, But w- full disclosure, I think one of the best presentations of this was done by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg as she talked about the Jewish understanding of repentance. So there's five steps. Some rabbis talk about this in seven steps. I'm going to break it down into five. It's just a choice I'm going to make. I've seen it in five. I've seen it in six. I've seen it in seven. I'm going to give it to you in five steps, all right? So here these, here's these steps. Step number one, steps to repentance. The first step is to confess the sin to God and any other relevant parties. It doesn't mean you have to confess it to the whole world. It doesn't mean there's an appropriate way and an inappropriate way to do this. But to confess, confess those sins before God, confess those sins to any relevant parties. What do I mean by that? The parties that have been affected by the sin that you have engaged in. Now, here's the interesting situation. I think most Christians equate confession and repentance. Does that make sense, Brent? Brent, do you think do you think most of Christianity has just like, oh, I confessed it, I said I was sorry before God, that's repentance, right? Absolutely. That's basically how I thought about it uh until, you know, going through Bama, essentially. Right. But that's not repentance, that's just confession. <laughs> And confession and repentance are two totally different things. Confession, which comes from the word, you know, to fess, like you might say to fess up to something, and con, with. So you are agreeing with, you are confessing. There's an agreement with, you are you are agreeing with with the other parties that you've done something wrong. There's a confession. And that's that's step number one. Step number two is acknowledging how that sin has negatively impacted others. I can tell you as somebody who struggles with narcissistic tendencies. I don't have full-blown narcissism. I'm not I'm not a narcissistic personality disorder. That's not my that's not my journey. Um but as somebody who has tendencies that I have learned about in my life, this is one of the most valuable steps that I think most spiritual leaders that are guilty of spiritual abuse completely 100% skip. You have to acknowledge, this is step number two, how the sin has negatively impacted other people. So the first step was simply confessing, I've done something wrong. The second step is significantly different. You're going to the next level of, okay, I've done something wrong, and this is the impact it's had on other people. Like it's negatively impacted this person's ability to trust spiritual leaders. It's negatively impacted this person's view of who God is. It's you know, and maybe it's not like, let's remove it from spiritual abuse. Let's say I, I stole a person's car. 
okay, I've done something wrong, but it negatively impacted them in that I've damaged the car and that they weren't able to get to work that day. And that like, here's this long list of ways that my sin has impacted, negatively impacted all these other parties. You have to connect the dots from the wrong you did to the impact it's had on others. And of course you can see why most of us don't want to go there. We just want to confess. Oh, I stole a car. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I stole a car. I gave it back. But that's that's just confession, and there's no repentance in that. There's no repentance because I have not connected. So what's the next step of repentance? Well, once I've acknowledged how it's negatively impacted the others, I have to make – this is step number three – make any possible and necessary restitution or amends, reparations. Like you have to take – if you've wronged – and sometimes you can't. There's no physical way to make restitution for a way that you've emotionally broken – somebody there's no like you can't just pay the bill but sometimes in the way that you wrong somebody you have you you damaged you broke the window and so and you broke the window because and so you have to confess the sin you have to realize that you broke the window then you actually have to pay to have the window fixed and if we know the principles of torah i probably need to go above and beyond i need to add 20 percent I need to not just repair the window, but make sure the window was even better. That's a part of justice. It's a part of putting the world back together. It's a part of restoration. So the first step is I I confess I did something wrong. The second step is acknowledging how that wrong negatively impacted others. The third step, if it's possible, is to make restitution and help repair whatever it is that I've broken. Fourth step, outline and communicate how you are going to behave differently in the future. Speaking to those parties who have been wronged, speaking to those parties that have been mistreated, you have to tell them, I've done something wrong. I know that it's impacted you negatively. And this is what I'm going to do about this so that it never happens again. Step number five, actually follow through and change your behavior. And in the Jewish mind, Brent, only when step five is completed has repentance been has repentance run its course. Repentance requires the entire process before you can say I've repented because repenting means returning back or to make a U-turn or however we want to talk about repentance. It actually refers to the changed behavior, not just the acknowledgement. Confession is merely the very beginning of a process. And now we can see why Christian ideas about confession, now we can see why so many times when somebody was wronged in the church and they confessed and everybody was like, well, they confessed, so I guess we should all just kind of like move on. And there was like, no, there's so much that's not repentance. There's so much that's still missing. How many times do we see like a public apology from a politician or a public figure or a celebrity? And it's an apology, like it uses all the right words, but there's no acknowledgement of how they've actually hurt anybody. There's no restitution made for the hurt that they've caused. There's no plan for what they're going to do to make sure that they never do that again. And then only when they prove that change of heart by a changed behavior, it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. They'll make mistakes, but their overall behavior has changed and they executed the plan. Well, that's when you can say, okay, this person, this person is, has, and it's not about proving. You don't have to prove your repentance. It's about repenting. <laughs> it's not about proving anything. God, God seeks the God searches the heart and knows the mind. Like 
God, God, God knows all things. This isn't about what God knows. This is about restoring relationships. And so I say all that because part of this journey that I'm on, Brent, is learning. I have recognized that I have at times been swept up in a world that has perp- uh, perpetuated spiritual abuse. I have to acknowledge the effects that that has had on other people. I, I have to, if there's anything that needs to be done to make amends, I have to make those amends. I then have to outline what I'm going to do. Part of what I'm going to do is continue learning about this stuff. Part of what I'm going to do is going to have this four-part conversation here in this podcast. Part of what I'm going to do is continue to get counseling and therapy. Part of what I'm going to do is continue to listen to survivors and victims. Part of what I'm going to do, part of what I'm going to do. And when I change my behavior and I become a different kind of leader, which I hope I am today, and only becoming more and more and more of a more trauma-informed leader, a better leader with more character and more integrity. Only then can I look back and I can say, I have repented of these ways that hurt other people. So more to come. That's not an end. This is just the beginning. That's not an end to the conversation. Now we've wrapped a bow on it, and now Marty can consider himself absorbed. No, 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 no. There's so much more we've got to talk about. There's so much more we've got to learn. So we've, we've got to have more more conversations. Brent, what do you think? I think I have so many questions for our next episode. So Woo-hoo! this is great. This Good. is great. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully this is a, a conversation that we can reflect on as a, a Baymont community for the next week. For those of you who are listening in real time, spend a week reflecting on this and, and think about what you've seen, what you've witnessed, what you what you think spiritual abuse is or isn't. And then we'll talk about it together more as we go on. Yeah. Uh, consider your posture. Is our posture defensive when we talk about this? Why? What, 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 why do we have, we don't have to be afraid about this. <laughs> we're, we're forgiven. We are invited to be made whole. We are loved. We're valued. We're accepted. Go all the way back to trust the story. Episode one. We, we don't have to worry about, I don't have to cane enable this. I don't have to be defensive. Um, like the whole thing about, like when we talk about deconstruction and what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Is our faith not strong enough? Is this thing that we believe in just a house of cards? I don't think so. I, I think some of the versions that I had before were houses of cards, but I don't think the faith that I have today is a house of cards. So I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to deconstruct. I don't have to be afraid to talk about spiritual abuse. What? what? I, I don't want to be, <laughs> I want to be better. I want to be more whole. I want to, I want to hurt people less. Um, if I want to become aware of the ways that I hurt people. So, so what is our posture? Is our posture defensive? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Is our posture one of like, are we opening ourselves up to going, can we take a deep breath and go, I want, I want to become more whole. I want to become more loving and I want to look more like Jesus. If that's our posture, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Boom. Text bomb dropped. (laughs) That's what we got to do. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Uh, If you want to get a hold of Marty on Twitter, you can find him at Marty Solomon. I'm at EABCB. You can find more details about the show at BamaDeception.com. Maybe join the Bama Slack and join us in conversation about this topic. We can wrestle with it together. Uh, or maybe find a discussion group locally. So check out the website and go to the, the groups tab. We've got a map of discussion groups like this. We, we need family, as we talked about. So we need we need a community to, to wrestle with this together. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.